Thank you for all your questions. So do you have any tips for integrating our practice with the various challenges posed by the skeptics in our lives? Or perhaps just how to deal gracefully with skeptics without getting caught up in a net of self-justification? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All those people you'll be with when you leave here wondering what in the world you were doing here. A few things came to mind when I, re- when I read that question. One was, in that situation, of being with people who may be skeptical or judgmental, and you feel yourself getting defensive in that uh, discussion, first I would look to see whether it's touching any place of doubt within oneself. You know, and there may be doubts that uh, are in the mind that we haven't really looked at or seen or acknowledged. So it could be a useful exercise just to take a look either at that time or outside of the conversation, uh, just to see whether that hindrance is arising in any form within yourself. But assuming there's not, assuming that you know you feel this confidence, but you don't quite know how to handle the discussion. One point, I was at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey with uh, there were fifty Buddhists, twenty-five Buddhists and twenty-five Christians uh, meeting. Uh, the Dalai Lama was there that particular time. And one of the things he said in the discussion, which is so characteristic of him, the kind of tolerance of mind and respect for various viewpoints, he said, your your way may be right for you, my way is right for me. And it was just the simplicity of that struck me. He wasn't defending anything, he wasn't proselytizing, he wasn't trying to convince anybody of anything. He was just saying that your way may be right for you, my way is right for me. And I think that attitude goes a long way to diffusing the argumentativeness of those discussions. And then one further approach, after one has kind of established a mutual respect, then I think it's actually possible to drop down from the level of philosophy or dogma or belief in a discussion with people who may not particularly understand the Buddhist teachings. You you don't particularly want to get into a, a battle over selflessness. But I think it is possible to really explore with other people basic common values, common spiritual values. What is our practice really about? 
It's about freeing the mind from greed, freeing the mind from hatred, freeing the mind from ignorance. On that level, I think we find a lot of common ground with people of all philosophic or spiritual persuasions. So it could be helpful in those discussions just to come down to the basics rather than, rather than arguing philosophy. I mean, there are very few people in the world who would probably say, or people you're engaged in discussion, yes, hatred is good. We should have more hatred. Yeah, greed is good. You know, I think there is that common understanding. Okay. How can we work with detecting the four elements in thinking? Also, if we can see the body as the four elements plus space and consciousness, how might light fit in? Is it considered to be part of consciousness? Thinking is a mental process, and so the thought itself is not a physical element. Because the thought is, is a mental phenomena. However, mental phenomena can be experienced through their effect in the body. And Goenkaji, especially, who's one of, one of our teachers in India, he would all, always speak of how thoughts, feelings, mind states could be experienced through the sensations in the body. So one way of tying thoughts to the four elements would be, especially with repetitive thoughts or... long ones, you know, to really see as the thought is happening, what are, the, what are the sensations that we feel? And those sensations are a um, how to say, they are a manifestation of the four elements. So we can see the effect in the mind, we can see the effect of the mind in the body question about light, I'm really not quite sure of. Certainly, external light is a physical element. The light that we experience internally I think it's more connected with mental factors than with uh, physical matter. Because that light that arises within meditation is really a conceptual, a conceptual occurrence due to the arising of concentration. Uh, it's called a nimitta or a sign. And so that's a mental occurrence rather than a physical one. But don't quote me on that one. I am confused about the first precept. During flu season, I wash my hands regularly to kill germs. It is my intention to kill germs. In the kitchen, in the refuge, a sign on the hand-washing sink says to scrub with antibacterial soap for at least 30 seconds. The intention is to kill germs. 
When the refuge was built, didn't living beings like worms, etc., get killed as the ground was broken and the foundation was laid? So what's the deal? Is it that tiny beings don't matter? Or if they're going to make us sick, then killing them is okay? In that case, would it have been okay for the U.S. or U.N. to have killed a dozen or so key Hutus in 1994 to prevent the deaths of 800,000 Tutsis? We had tried diplomacy and even signed a peace agreement right before the genocide. For the Hutus, the agreement was a distraction tactic. It goes on. So can the first precept be followed perfectly? If not, when and how do we decide when killing might be something we or our country should do? I think the questions of ethics uh, is a tremendously important one to investigate in our practice and in our lives. Because it's not always simple. There's not always a simple answer to some ethical questions. So how can we begin to sort things out? First, it's helpful to acknowledge something that the Buddha said when he was extolling the life of the renunciate, the monks, nuns, he said, the household life is full of dust. Meaning, in the world, living in the world, it is very difficult to live as purely as when one is living the life of a renunciate. Because we're engaged in many kinds of activities that a monk or a nun is not engaged in. And so we are confronting these questions much more often. I think it's helpful just to recognize that, that given our lives as lay people, these situations are going to arise. We had a situation at the retreat center, you know, this is quite a while ago, 15 years ago or so. Uh, where there were a lot of cockroaches in the kitchen. What to do? We had more board meetings around that issue. We even had something had the unfortunate name of the killing committee. <laughs> Just to discuss the, do we kill them? Don't we kill them? Clearly, there was, there was a concern Right? It's not something that we wanted to undertake lightly, and yet there were very compelling reasons to get rid of them. And we tried kind of some of the New Age ways of inviting them to leave, telling them what was going to happen. <laughs> you know, you better go now. <laughs> I think, I can't quite remember, but I think we actually invited some people down who kind of were you know, supposedly good at that kind of thing. But in the end, it's like we had to make the choice. Yes, weighing all the options. Uh, it was becoming not only, not only an aesthetic unpleasantness, it was becoming a health problem. And 
do we shut down the center and not kill the cockroaches? Or? So in those situations, it is very hard to follow the precept impeccably as we're dealing with these issues. I think a key element in the process is really looking at our motivation, right? Because we could kill the cockroaches out of disgust and aversion. That's the, that's the quality that could be in our mind. Or we could undertake that killing with as much compassion as possible, understanding the reasons why we made that choice, understanding it's an unwholesome act, feeling compassion for the beings. So in those difficult situations where we're making, we feel it's appropriate to make that choice, we can do it more consciously rather than less consciously. And I think that's uh, our obligation. The... I think the reference point for reflection before any action should be the reflection on non-harming. And is there any way to accomplish what needs to be done? Is there any way that we can do that through non-harming? You know, so that becomes our reference point. And then we move from that place. I mean, even in Asia, although I don't, never heard it talked about at the monasteries, it's like the same accommodations are made to the realities of living in this world. It's not that the monks or nuns would undertake uh, any killing. But lay people are brought in (laughs) to do the dirty work. (laughs) So again, if we want to live in that pure way, then I think we need to be living in the form and structure that allows for it. So, will you speak about the stages one goes through practicing mindfulness? There are many different models which describe this unfolding path. One model, which is in one of the suttas, I believe it's in the Middle End sayings, describes the seven stages of purification. And it's, it's described as a relay, like a, a chariot relay, where a chariot goes you know, to the first station and then get off and get on another chariot leading to the second station, then to the third, fourth, up to the seventh. So what are these seven stages of purification? This is obviously going to be a very brief summary of what could be a whole talk. There's purification of conduct, which is the first and the foundation, and that's the basic commitment to sila, to non-harming. So when we take the precepts and attempt to follow the precepts, we have already accomplished that first, pu- first purification. 
it's not that all our past actions need to have been impeccable because I think for none of us, you know, have we been perfect. But once we commit, it's like from this moment, once we commit to the precepts, then this first purification uh, is fulfilled. The second is purification of mind. And this means the establishment of a basic level of concentration. And usually it means access concentration, where we've developed enough steadiness, enough stability of mind, that it's not just endlessly lost in thought and wandering. An image which I've used to describe this level of access concentration, if you imagine an arch and then you're trying to balance on top of the arch, and then you fall off one side, and you have to scramble back up to the top, fall off another side, to scramble back up with a lot of effort. And at a certain point, the arch inverts, and it becomes a trough. And then we're balanced at the bottom of the trough. We're still pulled out of balance from time to time, but the mind naturally falls back into that place of balance. That's what happens at a certain point in our practice with the concentration. You know, in the beginning, we're really struggling to bring the mind back. At a certain point, the mind is resting in the moment, resting in the object. Not that it never gets pulled, pulled out of it, but it comes back to it quite naturally, quite easily. This development of concentration which comes just as we practice, as we focus. And it's one of the reasons in the beginning of practice so much emphasis is given to the breath, just staying with the breath, the rising, falling, the in and out, just to establish this basic level of samadhi. Then this purification of view, which is really an important turning point because it's the first real insight into selflessness into understanding that in any moment there's just knowing an object. There's a breath in the knowing of it, a sound in the knowing, a sensation in the knowing, a movement in the knowing. And in any moment, that's all that's happening. So when we see that carefully, we begin to get this understanding. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. So this is also called the insight into nama rupa, or purification of view. That leads to the purification which overcomes doubt, which begins to see the cause and effect relationships between mind and body. Then there's purification of seeing what is the path and what is not the path. And this is also a critical juncture. And this happens at that stage when we're seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena very quickly, very spontaneously, very sharply, very brightly. And all of the enlightenment factors get very strong. There's strong concentration, mindfulness, rapture, energy. But at that point, there's this very strong tendency to get attached to these states. We take those states to be the path because they're so wonderful and so fulfilling. And at that time the very factors of enlightenment are called corruptions of insight. 
because they're so seductive. And very commonly, at this point in practice, people think that they're enlightened, they're awakened, because it's such an extraordinary turning point for us. We're, we've really entered into, you could say, uh, the, the, the microscopic world of fundamentals. You know, we're really seeing that for ourselves clearly. But the purification at this stage is seeing what's the path and what's not the path. We realize these states of mind are not the path if we get attached to them. So the next stages of insight, it's called purification by knowledge and vision of the way. And it's a whole series of experiences that people have first of being non-attached to these very pleasant meditative states, then going through stages of dissolution, where we're just seeing things disappearing, seeing the dukkha of things. They're called the fear, misery, and disgust stages, you know, where we're just seeing the dukkha side of things, leading to equanimity, leading to the stages uh, which open us to the experience of nibbana. So there's these progressive stages of purification and insight. Keep in mind that this is one model describing the path. Some people's practice follows this particular model very classically. Even in not knowing it, They'll come in and report things, and it's just just like you're reading it in a textbook. There are other models. It's like in the Thai forest tradition. They don't particularly talk about these stages of insight, and it's much more talked about in terms of just continually freeing the mind from clinging and grasping. So that's the only issue. And there are a lot of people's practice, as they report their experience, is not so much in these classical stages, but in, in the framework of just letting go of attachment moment after moment. It's helpful just to be aware that there are many descriptions of the path. Um, and in some later questions, I'm going to go into this in a little more detail. This question is a good one to follow the last. Is it possible to cultivate or develop some discernment between striving or ambition in practice and its opposite, which I'm guessing is just pure aspiration? How to recognize slippery striving that seems often so hidden and how to skillfully work with it once seen and recognized. And for those of us who are staying and practicing with Ujjanaka, any stories or wise reflections on how to respond to the Burmese style of teaching which often triggers striving or self-judgment. How to hear the path of progress or stages of enlightenment with balance and equanimity. Yes. 
I think this is a really important question. As we hear the different descriptions, it can trigger different things in us. What's the difference between striving and ambition and aspiration? I think aspiration, holding a goal and having an aspiration for the goal is really expressing the quality of faith, of sata. My understanding of that quality, it's that state of mind, state of heart, which opens us to what is beyond beyond our, our current level of understanding. It's acknowledging that there is something more. You know, that we're not fully enlightened yet, and there is a lot to explore on this path. And we can have the aspiration, however we articulate it for ourselves, of awakening, of freedom, of enlightenment, so we're holding, we're holding that space, but it's a space of openness. That's very different than the quality of ambitious striving or expectation, which contains within it so much sense of self. And I think that's the, um, that's the signal for one in terms of seeing the difference. Aspiration is a space of openness. Ambitious striving, you can feel the contraction, you can feel the struggle of self wanting something. When we feel that, when we feel that sense of expectation, there are a few antidotes to employ. And some of them are reflections, and some of them are direct looking at the nature of the free mind. One of the reflections that's been helpful to me when I've been caught in that kind of striving, is a memory I had of planting a garden when I was eight years old. It was my first and last garden. So I planted this garden. And, you know, I prepared all the ground, I planted the seeds, and then the carrots started coming up. You know, and as soon as I saw the green, you know, what do you call them? The, you know, the shoots, I guess. So, uh, the, the green things <laughs> coming out of the ground. I got so excited, I would just kind of pull them out to see how they were doing. That kind of checking <laughs> was not very productive, and it did not uh, produce a very good garden. Well, likewise, in our practice, if we're continually checking, if we say, well, how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I here? Am I here? Am I here? We're not surrendering just to this process of letting it happen, letting it mature, letting it 
grow by itself. It's going to happen, it's all going to happen in its own time. And so we want to see how expectation for particular experience comes in and muddles everything. The Dharma is unfolding by itself. Our only task, and this is where the simplicity of the teachings is so profound, the only job we need to do is to be mindful of what is arising. That's it. It's not that we have to create a certain experience to happen. So if we're caught in the expectation and the striving and the ambition, what we're doing is we're we're overlaying our notion of what should be happening, which is actually counterproductive because then we're not actually open and mindful to what is happening. Does this seem clear? Because the teachings are so, as I said, profoundly simple. Our only job is to be mindful of what's arising, moment after moment. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. It's irrelevant. So when we remember this, it can help to disentangle us from that kind of... uh, ambition or that kind of expectation. Another reflection which I resonated with a lot was a a teaching of Ramana Maharshi. Very simple. When he said, try to be less, not more. Now, which really points to the direction. It's not that we're trying to gain something. It's not that we're trying to become something. The practice is actually letting go. It's being mindful and not clinging. Being mindful and not clinging. Becoming less rather than more. Again, when we remember this, everything relaxes. Our heart relaxes. And we just allow this whole unfolding process to happen. Now, there's a very interesting question and challenge, really, of how we can be at the forward edge of effort without forcing, without striving, without that ambition. Because what I'm suggesting is not that we just become lackadaisical in our practice. It's to be right at that forward edge, meaning both a precise and exact attentiveness, that we really are mindful. We're not in a kind of more or less mindfulness state, but we we really are connected with the moment in as continuous a way as possible. So there's room for energy. There's room for right effort all taking place in the simplicity of the moment, not in a reaching out for one experience or another.
something that has also helped me in, and something I've observed, you know, in studying with uh, Burmese teachers, and particularly in this tradition, there is a lot of kind of striving language. It's kind of the language that's used a lot. One thing that's helped me hold that is seeing and realizing that the Asian psychology is very different than the Western psychology. And that language does not have the same effect, in my experience, on Asian practitioners as it does on Western practitioners. Because there's not that same sense of self-judgment you know, that we seem to carry in our cultural psychological conditioning. So they can talk a lot about, you know, striving and using all that kind of language, and it doesn't, it doesn't translate into people feeling terrible about themselves. Whereas we hear that same language, and we just interpret it, you know, in a way where we beat ourselves up. I saw this a lot just in my interviews with, with Saira Upandita early on before I got a little more comfortable with the system. But I remember, especially that first retreat, I would go in, and he says, most many of you know, he's, he's, can be a fierce teacher. <laughs> you know, I mean, often he's very loving as well, but he's very direct. Well, I would hear his suggestions for my practice. He'd kind of say something about my practice. And instead of just hearing it as a suggestion, you know, do this or that, in the beginning, I would always hear it as a judgment. I would take it as a judgment of how I was doing rather than a simple offering of a suggestion. So it took me a while to work through that, and it was just very revealing about how we need to understand our own psychology and what we bring to the language of this tradition. And if we can work through our own conditioning, or at least see it, then we can hear the teachings in just the way it's expressed and not get caught up. we We really take the value and the energy and the discernment of it. It seems like a lot of formal practice involves just getting used to unfamiliar states so that what once may have caused intense identification and reaction becomes no more than something else to note. Once something is familiar, it's much easier to maintain steady mindfulness, which causes letting go to naturally arise. Is this an oversimplification? I think, I think this is true, but not the whole story. Uh, a lot of our practice is reaching the boundaries of our comfort zone, of what's familiar, and we start playing at the edges of what's uncomfortable and unfamiliar, and often fear arises at those places, and the practice is getting familiar. Okay, can I be with these painful sensations? 
even though they might be very intense? Can I play at the edge and learn to relax into them? Or hold an intense emotion or an intense energy in the body? Sometimes it's too much, sometimes it's overwhelming, you know, and we, we do need to pull back. And other times we practice right at that edge, and we open, we get more familiar, and then it does become just another experience to note. So I think all of that is quite accurate. But the other side is recognizing that sometimes what's most familiar to us causes a lack of mindfulness. You know, because it's so habituated, it becomes just a pattern that we're identifying with it and we're not even recognizing that we're identified with it. And of course, the hindrances as a framework for looking at those kind of experiences, you know, lethargy or dullness or annoyance or wanting you know, or you're sitting and after 45 minutes or an hour, you know, there's a little restlessness in the mind. Oh, I guess the sitting's over. Time to get up. You know, it's just so familiar. It's not, it's not in some extraordinary state. It's just kind of this ordinary state coming through. And because it's so ordinary and so familiar, we actually are not applying the same mindfulness to it, not seeing it as just another passing state. So I think it's on both sides. It's opening to what's unfamiliar and also getting very clear and mindful of what is familiar so we're not seduced by those states. This is in couple parts. First part is a preamble. Upandita is quoted as saying in, in, in this very life, that's the book of his teachings, that when enjoyment is experienced, the defilements are always present. Bhante Gunaratna says in his book on the Eightfold Path that Western Dharma teachers who tell students they should mindfully enjoy sense pleasures are wrong. Instead, they should be let go of. So the question, what is good practice in relation to the experience of enjoyment? Do these comments mean if you are experiencing enjoyment, you are doing something wrong? What if you accidentally enjoy yourself? (laughs) Is that still wrong? Well, this question, I think, points to... a very interesting and in some way critical discernment. And of course, it has to do a lot with how we understand the word enjoyment. There, I'll propose one, one meaning of it, which would give... Uh, 
support to to Sadao and Bhante Gunaratna's comments. There is a difference in my experience when I am in a state of mindful, open equanimity and a pleasant feeling arises and I am experiencing the pleasant feeling. So it's not a pushing away or a denying of the pleasantness of it. But there is no engagement with it. It's actually, in relationship to how the mind is relating to it, it's the same as if it were an unpleasant feeling. So it's sort of like, just as an example, if if you just take space as a metaphor for the mind, Okay, it's, it's not the mind, it's just, I'm just using it as an image. The space is not affected by what is appearing in it. You know, there's pleasant sound, there's unpleasant sound, and again, just to anthropomorphize space in terms of consciousness, if we think of consciousness as simply knowing, that knowing experiences, yes, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, but there's not the engagement with the object, with the experience. There's no identification with it. That, in my experience, is different than when I say I'm enjoying something. Because when I'm enjoying something, there's something extra to the awareness that it's pleasant, to the knowing that it's pleasant. So that's the place. I think that's the place of discernment. I don't particularly put it in terms of right and wrong. You know, I, don't think, I don't think that's particularly the language because we are not yet fully awakened. We're not free of desire. You know, all, these, all these forces are going to be there. There'll be many, many times when we are engaged, either enjoyment of the pleasant or non-enjoyment of the unpleasant. But I think it's helpful not to confuse that with the place of freedom of mind that is not identified at all with what's arising. Again, it's not a pushing away and it's not, there's a lot of, a lot of double, triple negatives. <laughs> it's not a non-feeling of the pleasantness of it. It is feeling the pleasantness of it. But in the words of the Satipatthana Sutta, to the extent necessary for bare knowing. We're just there with it. We're not getting seduced by it in any way. So to see this, and I think this is really worth exploring in your experience. And you can do it I'm, you know, at those times when you might have you know, pleasant feeling arise, pleasant sensations arising in the body, or 
you know, rapturous feelings, even if it's for short times, really investigate at that, that, at that time how is the mind relating to it. Is it equal to you? <laughs> is the mind, would the mind be equally, uh, I would say, equally non-preferential to that versus an unpleasant feeling? Because that will point out whether there's a degree of attachment or not. And the Buddhist teaching We need to see what level we're keying into the teachings. When the Buddha talked about, especially for lay people, he, he gave the map for how to enjoy sense pleasures. You know, he said, if you practice generosity, if you practice sila, there's a lot of sense pleasures. The, the karmic result of that will be sense pleasures, you know, and happiness in the world. And if you want more refined happiness, you practice concentration. So all of that is mapped out. All of that is possible. But if our aspiration is freedom, then this discernment is critical. You know, and I think that at least while you're here, this is a very good opportunity uh, to see this difference. Um. Understanding the Dhamma is a lifelong process. In one... Something of how understanding evolves, what is the biggest change in your own understanding? That is, what was your biggest misunderstanding at the beginning? Personal disclosure required. (laughs) I mean, without, without any doubt at all, the biggest misunderstanding uh, was the unquestioned notion of self, of I. You know, and I think this is true of everybody coming to the practice. Very, f- very few people come to the practice with a profound understanding of selflessness. There may be, maybe there are a few, but... And so my whole life, as well as everybody else I knew, just revolved around a sense of self, a sense of I. And the transformation of that way of seeing things really is radical. To see that the sense of I is, you could call it an illusion, you could call it wrong view, you know, hallucination of perception, it's not what is actually there. And so that's, that's a very big turning point. The other big, the other big turning point in my practice was 
the understanding of bodhicitta and the relationship of compassion to emptiness. Because for many years, it's like I was, I didn't get, I misunderstood just in terms of the bodhisattva vows, you know, which are not, which are more more articulated in the Mahayana tradition. Uh, you know, I vowed to save all beings. There are a few traditional vows, which always inspired me, but also just seemed completely impossible. You know, it's like, how could I ever do that? And so I just put it aside. And I said, well, it's a nice idea, but it doesn't really relate to my experience. And then in one set of teachings on bodhicitta, it just became very clear that compassion is the activity of emptiness. You could say compassion is the activity of selflessness. So it's not that the bodhisattva vow rests on the shoulders of a self, but actually the more we understand there's no one here, that it's just the Dharma unfolding, and that compassion is the expression of that emptiness, then the Bodhisattva vows, at least to me, made complete sense. That's just what happens in the absence of self. So the bringing of these two together was also just a very inspiring turning point for me. Uh, And it, it very much energized uh, my practice. Because instead of casting it in terms of me getting enlightened, which is just kind of a contradiction in terms, it sort of took refuge or rested in the realization of emptiness manifesting as compassion, you know, and just seeing the endless possibilities of that. Um, Those were some of the big things. Okay, I think (laughs) five minutes to discuss Nibbana. What is meant by turning the mind toward the deathless element, taking Nibbana as the object, (coughs) and attaining the signless concentration of mind? Are these in the realm of concentration, jhana, absorptions with a fixation, or do they point to a realization via ultimate insight without a mentally constructed or fabricated fixation? So this is also another related question. Just put them together. Often clinging, grasping... Now, after clinging and grasping is relinquished, there is in the suttas and or writings of certainly the Mahayana Tibetan masters the state of awareness or consciousness that does not abide on an object, is not resting at a sense door. Is this not called the deathless, the unborn, that which doesn't arise or pass away? Would you please discuss this?
and it goes on, but then, is there an undifferentiated ground, a unified field of pure mind consciousness that is being pointed to between eternalism and nihilism, which the Buddha rejected? What is there that is joyous, not isolated, love, something, nothing, neither, nor, or? I know this is coming from my own anxiety with my experience and awareness of impermanence, but that doesn't dismiss the concern. Okay. So these questions really point to the question of Nibbana, the unborn, the deathless. And what is it? As most of you know, different traditions describe it very differently and often in contradictory terms. And of course, this coming or confronting this was one of the motivations for my exploring and then writing One Dharma because I had teachers, different teachers, in different traditions, who I felt both to be enlightened masters and great beings, saying very different things. And so the question in my mind, which drove me crazy, was who's right? You know, and if one is right, then the other must be wrong. And I would just be going back and forth between these two until, really, through a great struggle. And this was this was not a this was not an intellectual exercise for me, because it felt like the whole direction of my spiritual path depended on what conclusion I came to. Some teachers were saying that the deathless, the unconditioned, transcends awareness. It's the cessation of consciousness. Other great teachers were saying there is a pure awareness which is freedom, an awareness that's not connected to the five skandhas. What to do with these conflicting views? I mean, it's very easy to jump in with an opinion and a judgment based on one set of views or another about which is right, which is wrong, that was not very satisfying to me because I felt that I was with beings who embodied freedom saying these different things. Well, for me, the resolution of this question came in two ways. It came first in the realization that with respect to the fully enlightened mind, I just didn't know. And so I developed my now new favorite mantra, who knows? Is the deathless beyond awareness? Is the deathless pure awareness? Rather than think I had to have an opinion about it or a view, I could say, yeah, these teachers say this, these teachers say this, Who knows? Let me continue practicing, get fully enlightened, and then I'll have my own opinion. (laughs) So that was one 
one tremendous help to me of just real, okay, I don't know. The second was, I began to see all the teachings as skillful means rather than as statements of some absolute truth. Because if we take the teachings as statements of some absolute truth, then conflicting views create problems. If we see all the teachings as skillful means for freeing the heart, then even conflicting views, it doesn't matter if they're effective skillful means. So skillful means for what? What is the nature of liberation? Here the Buddha was very clear in all the traditions. There's a, there's a great unifying understanding of freedom. And that is the mind of no clinging. It's found in the Pali text, it's found in the Tibetan text, it's found liberation through non-clinging. I want to read something from, this is from a Tibetan Dzogchen text. Awareness basically, awareness meaning Rigpa or what is taken to be the unconditioned, right, freedom. Awareness basically means freedom from clinging. If there is clinging, it is not awareness, it is mind. By mind I mean ordinary mind. That's the same teaching in the Pali text, liberation through non-clinging. And so we can take all of these teachings and bring them down experientially what are we actually practicing? How do we experience the deathless? We experience it through the practice of not clinging to anything. Not clinging to the mind, not clinging to the body, not clinging to awareness, not clinging to knowing. So I just coined this phrase for myself, metaphysics as skillful means. You know, because all the different traditions have their metaphysics describing reality. But all of them are just concepts. They're pointing to something. They're not the truth itself. What are they pointing to? The experience of the mind that is not clinging to anything. So it becomes very uh, clear in terms of our own practice and our own experience of the deathless. Bringing it from the level of metaphysics to the level of experience, again, the Buddha was very clear in his description of nirvana, nibbana, He said, Nibbana is the mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion. So that's our checkpoint. That's our reference. In any moment, are we free of greed? Are we free of hatred? Are we free of delusion? Of course, we can be deluded about whether we're free of greed, hatred, and delusion, and we often are. But as we practice, it's like, in the Dzogchen tradition, they, they use the phrase clarifying the view. 
and the view basically refers to the state of awareness, the mind free of clinging, and that the practice is clarifying the view because we just, through mindfulness, we just keep observing and we get into states more and more free of clinging, but then we get aware of subtle kinds of clinging, you know, that we didn't even know were there. Just as a little exercise, at those times when you're really cruising, you know, the mind is concentrated, it feels like there's no clinging, you know, the mindfulness is strong. Sometimes what I'll do is just drop in the phrase at that time, mind of no clinging, or mind of no craving. And it's very interesting, very often in that moment, I'll just feel, my mind will relax from a holding that I didn't even know was there. So that's what's meant by clarifying the view. We get free of more and more subtle kinds of attachment. So that's it. (laughs) Don't cling. That's our practice.